Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Kellen and I have done episodes in the past on coping in the podcast, and we plan on doing several episodes in the future regarding coping as well. We want to make clear that today's episode on mental health crisis in the U.S. and globally is not a coping episode. The information that we're going to talk about here is not about how to deal with mental health issues, is not about how to cope with collapse. It's more about the increase in mental health issues and the implications or consequences that that can have on society as we go through collapse. And we did want to offer a quick word of warning that in this episode, we do talk about suicidal thoughts as well as other statistics surrounding suicide. Yeah, I love that you started out that way, Corey. And I think one other thing that's worth mentioning is that this conversation won't be comprehensive. We'll touch on some really important things, but there's so much more to talk about here. We won't get to all of it today. And I find it especially interesting because there's this co-relationship between mental illness and collapse, where a collapsing society can result in major impacts on mental health, but mental illness and mental health crises can also impact and even accelerate collapse. So there's this interesting relationship, which makes it such an important topic to discuss. It's also interesting to me because early on in the podcast, like the first couple of episodes, when you started teaching me, you made some comments basically saying, hey, if you're listening to this and this makes you uncomfortable or is a detriment to your mental health, 
please stop listening to it. We're not trying to degrade anybody's mental health. And who knows, maybe that caused a number of people to stop listening. But I think, Corey, you and I have been really shocked at just how many people have reached out to us saying, thank you for the information you're providing in the podcast and the way that you're presenting it. It's positively impacting, it's benefiting my mental health. And so I guess I just bring that up because to me, it's fascinating that there's this relationship between collapse and mental health and even between this podcast about collapse and the mental health of everyone involved. Yeah, it has been interesting to receive that feedback. And I think it's helped sort of shape our mission for the podcast and the reason behind why we're doing it. I mean, the reason all along was to educate, right? But I think what we didn't realize was that a lot of people sort of vaguely understand that things are going to get worse, but they don't understand why. And sort of that chaos that can happen in your mind of worrying about the future, but not knowing really why you're worrying or what it is you're worrying about can create anxieties, can cause all sorts of fears, sort of that fear of the unknown. And people have said that by being able to actually face the future with a knowledge of what it is we're facing has helped to improve their mental health. Yeah, and on a personal note, this whole topic is particularly important to me and relevant to me. You know, I've shared in past episodes and, and perhaps overshared that I've had some mental health struggles in the past. And in some ways with mental health, I think it's kind of like how people describe addiction in that you're never just cured. You might be able to leave behind an addiction and go the rest of your life without relapse, but you're still an addict you're just at a different stage of recovery. And I guess the parallel that I'm trying to draw there is that, you know, I faced some severe mental health challenges in the past. I'm fortunate that in the last handful of years, that hasn't been the case for me, but it takes this constant effort. I have to continually nurture my mental health in order to keep myself from falling back into the kind of crisis that I was in before. And so I'm always thinking about this kind of thing. I care a lot about it. And where it is such a relevant topic, or you could say a, a subtopic of the larger general conversation about collapse, I'm really looking forward to us diving deeper here. Okay, so starting out, let's talk about what we're even saying, what we're even talking about when we say mental health or mental illness. You know, there are lots of different conditions that fall under that umbrella. There's things like bipolar disorder or dementia or schizophrenia or eating disorders. The ones that are most common and that we're perhaps most often referring to when we're just talking about general mental health problems are conditions like depression and anxiety. And for those that aren't as familiar you know, mental illness isn't the same as just negative um, emotions. You can feel depressed or anxious about something, but that doesn't mean that you have a mental illness. You know, having those emotions or feelings isn't the same as clinical depression or clinical anxiety, which is something much less passing or temporary. And it often has significant impacts on other aspects of health, like your appetite, your ability to sleep, your blood pressure. It's often something that you can't control or explain. And it's hard to understand this if you've never been through it. But for me personally, when I was really struggling with depression, I couldn't point to any reason why. Like my life was good and I knew that and I was grateful for it. 
I wasn't experiencing anything really disruptive or traumatic. And yet there was just, I don't know the way to describe it, kind of this darkness that I couldn't escape. You know, every time I was driving 75 miles per hour down the freeway, I was having constant recurring thoughts about just turning the steering wheel right into the median. So I couldn't explain the source of it. Nothing that I did, no, no amount of good things that were happening in my life could help me escape it. And I'm fortunate that I was able to get some help in terms of developing certain skills, working with some professionals. You know, but I bring all that up because it's great that the stigma is going away, that there's a less negative stereotype around mental illness than what there used to be. But it still exists out there. There's still this attitude, especially if you've never been through it before, that you're like, come on, just cheer up. Like, chin up, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, or you should just be more grateful. And not that there aren't coping skills that can help. But if you're listening and you're trying to wrap your mind around mental illness, please know that it's a, a real thing. It's as much of a condition as like a physical disease or a broken bone. Yeah, and based off of the statistics that we're going to talk about here in just a minute, I mean, there's a good chance that you listening to this may be someone who has experienced something similar to Kellen or is currently experiencing mental illness. You know, it's a very prevalent thing in today's society. And, and that's, you know, the purpose for talking about it in this episode is to talk about how it's changing, the impacts that it's having on society, and again, the implications that it's going to have as collapse continues. From a personal perspective, I've never dealt with clinical depression. I do tend to get anxious. I think I have some anxiety. And I'm lucky enough that I'm able to kind of quickly recognize when an anxiety is coming on and, and have found ways to sort of slow that down or, or ward it off. It's definitely not like an anxiety disorder with severe panic attacks or anything like that. But I will say that there was there was one point in my life where I think I got a glimpse into what depression really looks like. And it was a time where I was really isolated. I was away from my family and I was experiencing some of the anxiety that I just mentioned and it was getting worse and worse. And so I went and talked to someone. I went and talked to a doctor and that doctor prescribed me a medication to try and help. And you know how like in the, the commercials for a lot of these medications, they'll say like side effects may include suicidal thoughts or worsening depression. And that is exactly what happened when I took this medication. That very night was the darkest night of my life. You know, I've never felt that way. Just this feeling of dread and sort of just darkness and doom and gloom. And there, there was just nothing, no way to make that feeling go away. And I remember just laying in bed and all I could think about was the knife in the kitchen 20 yards away and this impulse to go grab it. And I stopped taking that medication and, and that feeling went away and I've never felt it again. But at any time I now hear about depression and, and anxiety and things like that. Like I, I go back to that moment and it helps me empathize because it, it, it was so weird. Life was great, right? And I'd never felt that way before. One day, just happy, everything's good. The next day, just in a place that I, I can't really describe. But I can say that my heart goes out to people who feel that consistently, who live with that every day and battle that and fight that and to think, you know, there are people who feel that and are going through that and are having really tough times in other aspects of their life, right? Imagine feeling that way and then losing your job, struggling to pay your rent or keep your family alive and well and happy, or you're having relationship issues. Life is hard. It really can be very hard. And when you're going through something like depression or anxiety, 
or any other mental illness, it can be debilitating. Yeah, there's this suffocating, irrational despair that comes with depression or panic and feelings of being overwhelmed that come with anxiety. And one kind of funny fact about me is that I have broken my clavicle, my collarbone, four times, two on each side. So I've kept it even. But there are claims from people that have broken all sorts of bones in their body that that's like the second most painful bone to break. That your femur is the first, your collarbone is the second. I haven't ever broken enough bones to know if that's true. But I'll just say, if somebody gave me the choice, hey, you're going to have to experience some pain. I've got a hammer here. I can take it to your clavicle. Or you can go back to that depression that you experienced before. I would much rather take the physical pain. It is that severe. And so I'm with you. My heart goes out to anybody who's going through that. If you're listening to this and you're in that kind of a state of mind, please seek out help. It's worth the time, the effort, the cost to get whatever help you need to get out of that. So and here I am kind of comparing and contrasting physical pain and emotional or mental pain. And that lays a little bit of foundation for just how complex and nuanced mental health is. You know, you can go to the doctor and get your blood tested to find out you have a certain disease, but there isn't anything quite so definitive as that in order to diagnose somebody with a mental illness. It's much more subjective. It has a lot more to do with asking the patient certain questions. And maybe if there's seven items, if you answer two of them as a yes or three, maybe you're just still not clinically diagnosed with that. But if you answer four or five as a yes, then okay, now you have this condition. And so that's just one of the reasons why there's so much debate around whether mental illness is actually getting worse, both in the U.S. and globally. And I know, Corey, you're going to share some specific numbers, but so much comes down to, like, how do you measure that? Are you talking about the severity of cases? Are you talking about the the frequency or prevalence of diagnosis? Are you measuring suicide rates? Or if there are more cases of people being diagnosed, is it just because it's becoming destigmatized and people are more willing to talk about it and get treatment? Or is it because physicians are overdiagnosing it? Or are they just passing out prescription antidepressants like candy? So I guess the point there is that if somebody says, no, it's not actually getting any worse, depending on how they're measuring it and how they're looking at it, they might be right. Whereas if somebody says, no, there's a lot of objective, very definitive proof that it's getting worse. I mean, it's hard to argue against that. Yeah. So that being said, you know, I've got some numbers here and these numbers come from different surveys, different statistics, different sources, and they show a general trend in a worsening of the mental health crisis. And so, yes, take into consideration everything that Kellen just explained around how that's measured and and what that could mean. But here's some numbers. So in 2019, just before the COVID-19 pandemic, one survey stated that 19.86% of adults experienced a mental illness in the U.S. So that's equivalent to nearly 50 million Americans. More than 48,000 people in the U.S. committed suicide in 2018, and over 2.5 million youth in the U.S. have severe depression, with multiracial youth being at the greatest risk. And I'll break down those numbers a little bit more in just a second. Globally, one in four people are afflicted by mental illness at some point in their lives, with women twice as likely as men to be diagnosed. Between 2005 and 2015, the number of people living with depression increased by over 18%. Globally, nearly 800,000 people commit suicide every year. 
broken down, that's one person every 40 seconds. Earlier in the year, researchers surveyed 1,200 Chinese healthcare workers who treated patients with COVID-19, of which half had symptoms of depression, 44% had symptoms of anxiety, and one in three struggled with insomnia, and over 70% experienced symptoms of distress. And they said that women, nurses, and frontline workers reported higher rates of all four symptoms of stress. So just sort of this idea that the prevalence for mental illness currently is very high. According to the CDC, 40% of Americans with a 12-month history of severe mental disorders do not receive any treatment at all. And that's, you know, chemical treatment through meds or, you know, speaking with a therapist, any sort of professional help. 40% are not getting that help. Over 60% of youth with major depression do not receive any mental health treatment. So just a huge number of people, adults and children, going through mental health issues, not receiving any help. And on top of that, not helping is the fact that over 11% of Americans with mental health illnesses are not insured. So they have no financial access to getting that help, with most mental health treatments being quite expensive. Now, there's been a lot of talk about an increase in mental health issues since the pandemic started, which is very much the case. But this isn't something that just began in 2020. This has been going on for years that there's been sort of this increase, at least as far as these statistics show, in the prevalence of mental health issues. Sort of as an anecdotal piece of evidence that I can mention, I was recently speaking to somebody, an acquaintance of mine, who works at a local health department. He works with people with mental health issues and addiction. And he mentioned that he was hired on specifically because of the increase during the pandemic, they needed more help, but that the department itself had seen a large increase in the past five to 10 years. They were already struggling under the workload, but that the pandemic definitely had an impact and was making things harder. So before the pandemic, rates of depression increased by 52% between 2005 and 2017 among adolescents aged 12 to 17 years old. Depression increased by 63% between 2009 and 2017 in young adults aged 18 to 25. And the rate of suicide-related thoughts and outcomes increased by 47% from 08 to 17 among young adults. So just, you know, over the course of eight or nine years in most of these cases, very significant increases. Yeah, you've been sharing a lot of numbers. And I know for me personally, when I'm hearing statistic after statistic, it can be easy to kind of zone out. But those are significant, right? For certain demographics, for certain age groups, you're talking about in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s percent increase in prevalence. I mean, that's pretty alarming. And, and it seems like over a relatively short period of time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, talking about less than a decade to have that type of an increase, that's certainly a worrying trend. And I know we'll talk in a minute about some of the reasons perhaps behind that trend. You know, looking at consistent trends, one source stated that suicide rates in the U.S. have been increasing around 2% per year since the early 2000s, just consistently going up by 2%. The CDC released some data in 2018 saying that the suicide rate had increased in every single U.S. state except Nevada since 1999, and that overall the U.S. was at a 32-year high for suicides. Some other alarming stats, I'll just do a few more here. 15.08% of youth experienced a major depressive episode in the past year. In the worst-ranked states, up to 19% of youth ages 12 to 17 experienced major depression. So we're talking about one in five kids who are experiencing major depressive episodes or major depression. And when they were talking about major or severe depression, they're talking about a depression that is 
debilitating. They say it's something that severely affects functioning. And in the worst states, we're talking one in five kids are affected by that. So that's all before the pandemic. Since the pandemic started, obviously, we've got this huge increase that we've all kind of heard about just as far as you know, people feeling more isolated, people feeling more anxious about the future, people being ripped away from their normal routines, the things that they're used to doing, and that's caused an increase in mental health issues. There was a survey done by the New York Times and the corresponding article but they interviewed somewhere around 1,300 mental health professionals and the trends that they were seeing in their workplace. 90% of the therapists that were surveyed said that the number of people seeking care had increased, and most therapists were experiencing a significant surge in calls for appointments and had longer wait times. The CDC described an increase in the proportion of adults reporting recent symptoms of anxiety or depression, jumping from 36.4 to 41.5% percent just from 2020 to 2021. So that was just in one year. And among children and adolescents, the proportion of mental health related emergency department visits increased by about 25% compared with 2019. So just from one year to the next, to have those numbers jumping, you know, 25% is outrageous. One thing I found really interesting about the New York Times survey was that respondents mentioned that there was an increase in political disagreements listed as a source for distress, but that the feelings of isolation and depression were hitting all parts of the political spectrum. So it wasn't just one side or the other. It wasn't just people who believed that COVID-19 was a huge problem. They were saying that even people, if they didn't recognize COVID-19 as a genuine threat, they didn't believe in the science behind COVID-19, they were seeking help for mental health just as much as everyone else was. Yeah, and if I can chime in with a couple of things that I've come across as I've been doing some research on this. You know, there have been so many times of crisis in the past. Past generations, I mean, we've talked about moments in history that we are so grateful we're not living through. And so I think an increase in mental illness doesn't necessarily mean that life is harder now than it was in the past. So I think that's worth calling out. Another interesting thing is that, you know, you've shared some global statistics. A lot of them have been within the United States. There are mental health issues all around the world, but a lot of the data, the evidence suggests that the big increases and in the most prevalence is actually happening in developed nations. And that might be because in underdeveloped nations, citizens are focusing on just getting by and surviving and their lifestyle looks very different. Or it might be that they're having just as many mental health problems, but there's not the infrastructure in place or the education and awareness, the resources for people to even go get diagnosed or seek the help that they need. There's so many reasons why that could be the case, but across the board, as you are sharing all of these numbers, to me, it's a major indicator that, that it's a growing crisis. And you mentioned some anecdotal things. I'll just say, I've got a friend who is a therapist who told me that wait times just to be able to get in to see a mental health professional are very, very backed up. That it might take weeks or even multiple months from the time that you set an appointment to when you can actually get in to see somebody. And probably almost anybody listening to this can point to a handful of things that they've seen and say, yeah, anecdotally on my end, I'm seeing that there's a major problem here too. Yeah, it's funny you say that. The person that I was talking about, my acquaintance who works at the, the local health department, also mentioned that same thing, that wait times currently for them are in the months, not weeks. And I said, well, how does that work with someone who might say like, I'm having suicidal thoughts. Do you just tell him, okay, we can get you in four months down the road? And he said, 
know if it's that bad, like if someone is suicidal, we can get them in right away. We'll make it work. And I bring that up to say, you know, if you are experiencing something like that, don't think that you're going to have to wait four months and so don't bother trying. Do seek the help that you need and know that you, you should be made a priority. But for a less anecdotal evidence of these numbers, um, in that same New York Times survey, 75% of respondents reported they had an increase in wait times, and nearly 33% of clinicians said that it could take at least three months to get an appointment or that they had no room for new patients at all. So there are some who are just turning people away completely and saying, you know, we have, we have no room even in our wait list, sort of try again later. One respondent did describe the situation in a little more bleak terms. They said, I've had a client who was suicidal and experiencing depression for the first time in his life have to wait three months to see a psychiatrist for medications. So they were able to get them in right away and talk to them. This person wasn't able to get medications to help for at least three months. They said people don't have that kind of time when their life is on the line. A couple other interesting sort of facts that came out of this. Um, a lot of the respondents said that much of their time was being spent with clients who were needing help with family and relationship issues, specifically couples. There's apparently been a big increase in problems in marriages because people are spending more time together. It was talking about how after being quarantined and things like that, partners were realizing that they didn't like spending a lot of time together. They were noticing difference, differences in parenting styles now that their kids were staying home from school, spending habits, household chores, all of these things that normally they're spending a lot of time apart which kind of attracts you to each other more. There was less of that because so much time was being spent together. So one of them said, I'm already watching marriages crumble. None of the problems that they're presenting with are new. It's just their capacity to have resilience and compassion. And everyone is just so worn down. And as we go through the pandemic, that's the type of verbiage that I hear a lot. And I think I agree with like worn down, burned out, tired, for a lot of people who, especially people who aren't collapse aware, to have this sudden shift in their lifestyle and to continually think, we'll get out of this soon, just two more weeks of wearing a mask and this can be all over or whatever, and here we are two years later still kind of drudging through it, that is hard for a lot of people. And one last thing that I'll mention from this article that I thought was really interesting. They said that they did not ask in their survey about therapist burnout, but about 10% of the respondents raised the issue on their own. So without being asked, 10% of these therapists said, we are burning out, which means that the number is likely much higher than that. Around one in five therapists reported having had to cut back their hours because of their home life during the pandemic. One licensed clinical social worker named Brooke Bendix said mental health professionals are drowning. Burnout and compassion fatigue is real, as well as the guilt we feel when we cannot see all our patients and the wait lists continue to grow. So, you know, we hear a lot about healthcare workers. We hear a lot about teachers and the burnout that comes from those occupations. The same is happening with mental health care professionals. And one thing that's really quite interesting is that normally healthcare professionals are helping people through something that they're not going through themselves. So they can offer some different perspective. But throughout the pandemic, these mental health care professionals are going through the very thing that their patients are as well. One doctor said, usually we're not dealing with the exact same things as our clients. One thing many people are failing to acknowledge is the impact the pandemic has also had on therapists. 
So you've highlighted a lot of issues that were already there, a lot of indicators that mental illness was increasing even before the pandemic, but you also narrowed in on ways that the pandemic has presented new problems and that it has kind of accentuated or exacerbated existing problems. If nothing else, it has shown us just how fragile our national and global mental health is and also how fragile and unprepared our system is to be able to handle a big influx in mental illness. You know, you kind of hinted to some of the reasons why we're seeing spikes in the prevalence of mental illness. If somebody were to ask, what causes it? What causes depression or anxiety or any of the other kind of conditions that are out there? There isn't a single cause that you can point to. It's multifactorial. There's so many contributing causes. Really, every detail of a person's life, their upbringing and their family dynamic and their diet and their sleep patterns. But I'll just call out a couple of things that contribute in a really major way. One of them is just genetics. Like genetically, some people are more vulnerable or predisposed to mental illness. And I saw a study, it was actually a compilation of studies that had been done trying to pinpoint the genetic factors. And it was from a few years ago. I think there were 44 gene variants that were pinpointed that raise the risk of depression, but they continue to find more clues. The interesting thing is that just because somebody is at higher risk because of their genetics, that doesn't automatically guarantee that they're going to become depressed. Another big one, as you might expect, is life experiences. So especially things like abuse, trauma, domestic violence, stress, bullying, conflict, social isolation is something that you mentioned during the pandemic, Corey. You know, another one is substance abuse. And that one's interesting because it can be both a cause and a consequence. And there's so much that we could talk about there just with substance abuse. It's a whole episode on its own for sure. Yeah, the ways in which that increases as mental health is deteriorating and how, you know, they say correlation isn't causation. But in this case, there's kind of a dual correlation, which points to bi-directional causation. So, those are some kind of personal causes on an individual level, but I think it's worth mentioning collective or systemic potential causes. A huge one, and you'll see this over and over again in the research, is just that we're in this digital age. So social media, you can find almost countless studies out there that point to the fact that social media has a negative impact on mental health. Are you surprised? Not even a little, no. It's like we all know this, and yet everybody still spends as much time in social media. And and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, we're not really designed to be able to handle approval or disapproval from a network of hundreds or thousands or potentially even millions of people. Like that many likes and dislikes that can all play a huge part in your own self-image. There's also the comparison, right? It's it, it's a huge deal. You think about something like Instagram and the, and the way that people are comparing the worst in their own lives to the best in other people's lives. And oftentimes it's not even accurate. It, it's kind of this manufactured image that people post out there about themselves that makes it look like things are going so well for them. There's the fact that people are spending so many hours every single day looking at a screen. The isolation because of this digital age that we're in and, and that means so much less direct social interaction. There's the 24-hour news cycle. 
There's just knowing that everything you do is probably being recorded on a camera somewhere or, you know, every statement you make, everything you search is all being recorded somewhere that contributes to the anxiety that people feel. There's the fact that, you know, people are consuming an incredible amount of media. You look at the way streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus and all the others are just exploding. And the things that people are consuming, they're entertaining because of the extremes, the over-dramatization, the violence, whatever it is, it, it skews people's view of the world. So if I can just categorize all of that under the digital age that we're in being a huge factor in mental illness. And it's interesting to me because I came across something actually talking about the pros and cons of telemedicine and sort of using the digital age to our advantage, you know, for therapists to be able to help more people, but how that also has some of the very cons that you just talked about in regards to the digital age. You know, the, the great thing about telemedicine, you can meet people from far away, people who might not normally have been willing to talk to you, might feel more comfortable through a screen. You know, if people can't travel, they don't have money to get to your office, or they're trying to keep a conversation private from a spouse, and so this just makes it much quicker and easier to do that. But many therapists say that there's often a disconnect when you try and communicate with someone through a screen. You know, the therapist might miss important nonverbal cues. The atmosphere might not be great. It might be chaotic or disruptive with babies crying in the background or roommates coming in and out. The person might be more distracted. Some therapists even talked about how they could see that there was another screen open and the person was basically working while they were having this therapy session. So one doctor said an in-person office can help you slow down and provide a comfort that sometimes your home environment can't or that you can't get through a video call. And so it's just interesting to think that in this digital age, it's not only affecting like every aspect of our lives, it's affecting the very ability to get care and get help. And it's this funny comparison because technology has so many benefits for us, right? There's, it's done so much for us, but at the same time, it takes so much away. Yeah, a friend of mine, he's told me a little bit about his wife's mental health crisis that she's gone through recently and she was really intimidated to go see a therapist and she had learned that if she wanted to go see one in person it would take her months and she felt like she was at a point of crisis she couldn't wait for months so she instead opted for this telemedicine that you're talking about like a virtual therapy session because it meant that she could get in sooner and she personally didn't have a great experience. And I know some people do, but for her, it was really discouraging. It wasn't at all what she had hoped for. And I, I don't say that to be a downer on it, right? Like you said, there's so much good that can come from it, but it definitely presents some additional challenges. Well, and there's just kind of that weird irony, right? Of when you talk about being isolated, you know, you're talking to someone, maybe having this great conversation with a therapist through a virtual call, and then the call ends, your screen turns black, and you're sitting alone in a bedroom. There's just like some weird disassociation there for me of how impersonal that feels, even though it's not. You were having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with that person, but everything about the digital era just just feels like an episode of Black Mirror to me. Okay, so we mentioned collectively being in this digital age can be negative on mental health. Another thing that is impacting people and societies is that they can see what's coming with climate change. New terms that have been coined like echo anxiety, echo guilt, echo psychology, ecological grief, biospheric concern. I mean, there's so many different terms out there 
for this feeling that people have. And this isn't just anecdotal. Like there has been quite a bit of new research coming out about this. And there's varied results. They're finding, you know, I'll just read one statement from an article that I came across. It says, moreover, climate change also affects different population groups who are directly exposed and more vulnerable in their geographical conditions, as well as a lack of access to resources, information, and protection. Perhaps it is also worth underlining that in some papers, the connection between climatic events and mental disorders was described through the introduction of these new terms that I just mentioned. And then it later says, Acute events can act through mechanisms similar to that of traumatic stress, leading to well-understood psychopathological patterns. So they're basically saying that depending on where you live, climate change is going to be more stressful or less stressful, especially if you are experiencing these natural disasters, these extreme weather events, then what they're finding is people are displaying a lot of the same psychological behaviors and reactions and disorders that would typically fall under the category of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And you can imagine how important this new research is, you know, as collapse aware people, you know, imagine going to a therapist who doesn't understand your concerns, right? Maybe they don't find climate change as much of an immediate threat as we do. Maybe they don't understand the ideas around collapse. That can be frustrating if if your primary cause of anxiety is around those things and expressing them and maybe not getting the understanding or perspective that, that you would like. And maybe even feeling like your worries are, are maybe shot down or something like that, right? So having somebody who understands where you're coming from, who understands the anxiety and the seriousness of it will be really important and crucial as this field specifically becomes researched further. Yeah, I've just got to say, I don't know if you remember this, Corey, <laughs> but in one of our bonus episodes that we post on Patreon, we were talking about some current events from that week, and we had mentioned that somebody had been diagnosed with climate change. That's right. And the attempt was to say, like, this person's having all these symptoms, all these mental health issues, and even physical problems as a result of the heat waves. And, and the physician or whoever it was just said their condition, what, what's causing all these symptoms is climate change. And it was very controversial, but it, it highlights that climate change is having a negative impact, not only on physical health in many cases, but also mental health. Another article, I'll just share a couple of statements here. And as always, we'll try to make sure we link these in the episode description. This says, heat waves have been associated with mental and behavioral disorders. A study from Australia suggests that heat waves are associated with increased rates of admissions for mental disorders, also in conjunction with other disorders, such as cardiovascular and renal illness. Another part of it says it has been suggested that there is a relation between temperature rise and aggressive behavior. Increase in rates of criminality and aggression have been observed during the hot summer months, suggesting a link between aggressive behaviors and temperatures. And, and so they're just discovering and finding that there are all these negative impacts on mental health that come with climate change. And not only directly from climate change itself, but also from the concern and worry about climate change. Other systemic issues in regards to mental health, you know, not only do people see everything that's going on with climate change and they, they despair because of that, but they also see what's happening with so much corporate and political corruption. There's a measurable 
decline and decrease in the amount of trust that people feel towards organizations and especially towards their governments. People see the increasing political tensions and divisiveness. They, they even see how people are so mean to other people online. And there's this other interesting feedback loop that is that as people look around them and see that so many others are struggling with mental health, that in and of itself is kind of depressing and that causes them to face their own mental health struggles. And it's a well-known phenomenon, right? Where someone will commit suicide and it will be highly publicized. The media will talk about it and more people will follow suit. So whether you're talking about suicide or, or just depression itself, it's this positive feedback loop. And this is totally anecdotal. I don't have any evidence to back this next part up or anything, but it just feels like there's been an increase in sort of like social outbursts, people being willing to do things in public that they never would have done before, more arguing in the streets over petty things. I'll have to look up stats on this later to, to maybe see if there is anything to back that up. But it just feels like there's more rage, more road rage, more fights, you know, and, and who knows if that's actually the case or not. Are people being generally more rude to each other? Are people in customer service being treated worse than usual? It feels like that's happening just based on anecdotal evidence and, and things that people say. But it, it seems like a fair assessment or a fair conjecture to make that as mental health decreases overall, that our compassion, our tolerance, our willingness to be patient with each other in public settings is also decreasing. And maybe it's not just due to mental health. You know, some of the things that you brought up, heat waves, you know, the impact that climate change has on weather patterns and things can make people act out more. There's lots of reasons for why that could be. But that to me just feels like a consequence that we're currently seeing. And when I think about collapse continuing into the future, that's one aspect of it that, that frightens me is an increase in that sort of negativity. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I mean, you saw all the videos of people like screaming at other people in grocery stores for either wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. I don't think that would happen if people weren't feeling so much mental and emotional distress. And you could point to lots of examples of that. So from a collapse perspective, there are so many implications. Basically, in order for a society to function properly and run smoothly, the individuals of that society need to be mentally healthy. There are clear links to increased crime, more drug abuse, more violence, less productivity, higher costs in general when mental health suffers. So to be more specific on that, there's a direct correlation with mental health problems and homelessness, poverty, employment issues, safety, local economies, healthcare costs, the productivity of businesses, the ability of children to succeed in school. I'll read one statement here. A 2018 Lancet Commission report on mental health has stated that mental disorders are on the rise in every country in the world and will cost the global economy an estimated $16 trillion by 2030. There's a claim that just in 2012, right, a decade ago when some of these problems weren't as severe, expenditures for mental health care in the U.S. cost 
83.6 billion. We talked about drug abuse, substance abuse, and how that can be both a cause and an outcome of mental health problems. Here's one statement I came across. It says, according to a 2020 World Health Organization report, around 13 million people inject drugs globally, and 1.7 million of them are living with HIV. Injecting drug use accounts for approximately 10% of HIV infections globally and 30% of those outside of Africa. And then it went on to describe how there are so many diseases and other problems that come from people injecting drugs. And if that's increasing because of declining mental health, it's just one other example. So I've mentioned to you, Corey, that if things really collapse and, and really start to get serious more than they even are right now, if I had a community that didn't really have much in terms of resources or equipment or even skills, but they were mentally and emotionally resilient. And I had another community where they've got all the equipment and skills and supplies, but they aren't mentally resilient. Hands down, I would take the first. And a mass decline in mental health, in my mind, is in and of itself a, a form of collapse and at least an indicator of collapse. Yeah, that's really well said. And it highlights the importance of taking care of your mental health as an important preparation. We'll talk about this a lot more in other episodes. And again, we've talked about coping in the past, but mental health is one of those things that is an incredible asset to take into collapse. And of course, that's much easier said than done. You know, some mental health problems can be handled by just speaking with a therapist. Some might require medication. Each person, each case is going to be different. But I can say that it's not something that you want to just ignore and expect to get better on its own. You talked a little bit earlier about the stigma for seeking help with a decline in mental health. And, you know, I've personally spoken with therapists before, or with, I should say with a therapist before, regarding some of my anxiety issues. And that was a game changer for me. Just being willing to sit down and be open with somebody about your thoughts, being vulnerable about your issues, just getting that off your chest and talking to someone about that, at least in my case, completely changed the way I felt. It helped me immensely. Obviously, it's not going to be the case for everybody. For me, I think I was bottling up all these just anxieties, these thoughts, thinking that I was alone in those thoughts. And then talking to somebody about it and, and hearing how normal it was to feel that way or think that way was very eye-opening for me and, and has been a help to me up through now. I, I feel like every person on the planet could benefit by spending some time with a therapist. There are challenges to that that we've talked about. There are heavy workloads for therapists right now. Financial burdens for therapy can be expensive. And not all therapists are created equal. Some people have not great experiences with therapists, as, you, as you've mentioned, Kellen. And if you've had a bad experience in the past, I would hope you would try again with, with a different one until you find one that, that is helpful. But my point in, in saying all this is that taking care of your mental health is absolutely crucial to just everyday life, but especially as we go into sort of the chaotic lives of, of a collapsing society. Make sure to take advantage of resources that you have, even if it's not a therapist. You know, the Collapse Support subreddit is a great place. They have a Discord where people will talk about their anxieties together, give sort of tips or tricks or ideas that have helped them through their echo anxiety or collapse anxiety. Kellen talked about isolation and, how, and the impact that isolation can have on mental health and, and perhaps that being one of the main reasons for declining mental health. And, you know, we talk a lot about community and we'll talk a lot more about community in the future. But I think as we head into a collapsed world, 
you all know our feelings on the importance of community in that case. But I mean, community is the opposite of isolation, right? The ability to have genuine relationships with other people. It's not just helpful, you know, in a resource sort of way, but in a mutual aid to benefit your mental health. One last thing that I'll mention is that We've mentioned in the podcast, Robert Evans has talked about this. There's also a book by Sebastian Younger called Tribe, where they talk about how mental health generally increases during times of severe crisis. When people suddenly have to focus on survival, on helping each other to survive, their mental health increases. Some examples, um, the main example was World War II. Now, that won't necessarily be the case for everyone during collapse because a long collapse isn't necessarily an epic crisis in which we all, or I should say in which it's this big crisis where everything happens all at the same time. You know, it's, it's slower. And so if, you know, we're still going to work, we're still doing all the normal sort of mundane things of life. But if in those times of crisis, people's mental health improves because they're helping each other, because they're relying on each other. Why can't we do that now, right? Why, why can't we build a community or relationships within our communities where we are relying on each other, where we're helping each other? If sacrificing for someone else, if giving to someone else can help improve people's mental health, we don't have to wait until some epically huge crisis to do that. We can start doing that now. And I'm not saying that helping other people is going to solve your depression, but I think when we go out of our way to help other people to forget ourselves a little bit, for a lot of people, that might be something that's helpful. One last thing to note, that as of 2019, the CDC has officially recognized suicide prevention as a public health responsibility rather than solely the responsibility of mental health professionals. The National Suicide Hotline Improvement Act of 2018 recommended the use of a three-digit phone number for emergency suicide hotlines. And so anywhere in the U.S., mandated by July of this year, 2022, the number 988, so if you dial 988, all phone carriers in the U.S. should direct you to the National Suicide Hotline. It's an easier number to remember you know, if you're in a time of crisis, you can dial that 988. You know, it's hard to know how to end this episode. It's a heavy topic to which we don't have answers for. Like most things in this podcast, all Kellen and I can do is really emphasize that we have empathy for people going through mental health struggles. We hope you get the help that you need. We hope that you'll feel able to, to reach out to professionals who can give you that help. And if you're not going through these struggles, to work to understand other people who are, to be willing to help those people in your lives because most likely there is someone in your life going through it there are a lot of resources out there that we haven't listed here so if if you're listening to this podcast and you have other resources that you have found very useful please feel free to reach out send those resources to us we'll try and include them retroactively in the show notes or perhaps talk about them in the future A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.